Welcome to the sermon podcast of Southside Baptist Church, a body of Christ located in beautiful Norman Park, Georgia. We are so glad you chose to listen in today. It's our prayer you would find the message of Jesus Christ compelling and uplifting, and that your life would be changing continually from hearing the Word of God. If you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. And now for today's message. Indeed, life is worth the living just because he lives. That's a good segue into our message this morning. Back in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be reading from verses 4 through 7. And if you remember the theme of our series in the book of Philippians, it's living the best life. It's living the best life. And so as Christians, listen, we have the best life and we live the best life because we have Christ living within us. And we can celebrate uh, that this morning. We can celebrate that always as well. Again, Philippians chapter 4, be reading from verse 4 through 7. Last week we talked about spiritual stability. We talked about unity among God's people. And this morning we're back on that theme kind of of spiritual stability. We're going to talk about the attitude, the attitude of our hearts. The attitude of our hearts. Oftentimes we need to check our attitudes uh, and, and see where we are as far as our, our heart condition and all those kind of things. So if you found that passage this morning, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes this to the church there in Philippi. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father God, we bow before you again this morning. We've already celebrated this service, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your house to worship this morning. We thank you for this brother who's been baptized, Lord, to follow in obedience to you. We thank you for that. Father, we now, as we prepare to partake in your word this morning, Lord, again, once again, I pray that it be your words and and not mine. Father, I pray that you work through your word this morning, Lord. I pray that hearts are transformed. I pray that, that, that hearts, the attitudes of our hearts this morning, that we consider the attitudes of our hearts and how that leads to spiritual uh, st- stability within uh, the believer and how that leads, or leads to unification within the church. Father, we thank you again for this day. We're anxious to see what you're going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic, is quoted as saying this. He says, happiness, happiness is a warm puppy. Happiness is a warm puppy. Now, I love dogs, and in fact, Dana and I have two with Mr. Schultz. I, I do love dogs, so I certainly can concur with Mr. Schultz, that a warm puppy does bring happiness. But think about this for a moment. Think with me for a moment. What happens to the happiness when the puppy runs away? 
What happens to the happiness when or if the puppy dies? What happens to the happiness when the warm puppy is not so warm anymore? Let's take it a step further this morning. What happens when the money runs out? What happens to the happiness when the job is lost? What happens to the happiness when the loved one passes away or the loved one gets sick or that disease comes to the family, the dreaded C word, cancer? What happens to the happiness then? What happens to the happiness when the baby is lost to an unfortunate and heartbreaking miscarriage? What happens to the happiness when divorce ravages a family? What happens to the happiness when we don't get accepted into college or we don't get that dream job that we've always dreamed of having? The point is this, what happens to the happiness when our situations and our circumstances from which we get this happiness turns from happiness, turns from joy, turns from rejoicing to fear, anxiety, and uncertainty. I'm sure we can all relate as we've dealt with this past year and a half or whatever this is of this pandemic and the uncertainty and the fear of that. Well, for the Apostle Paul, those moments, too, called for joy. Paul found rejoicing. He found joy in his situation and his circumstances, regardless of what they were. In fact, Paul's letter to the church there in Philippi was all about joy. It was all about joy and it was all about encouragement. I often wonder how in the world, how in the world can the Apostle Paul write so much about joy and rejoicing? How could Paul be so joyful considering the circumstances and the situations that Paul found himself in most of the time? In fact, Paul, we know, is in Rome. He's in prison. He's under house arrest. And he's writing this letter to the Philippians and it's all about joy. It's all about encouragement coming from a man chained to a Roman soldier. So the point this morning is this. We need to understand that Paul called the Philippian believers. He called them to have hearts full of joy and full of rejoicing. And for us as Christians, Paul has hearts that reply well. We need to have hearts that are full of joy. Hearts that are full of rejoicing. Hearts that replace the anxiety and the worry. And we need to understand something else this morning. That our joy and our rejoicing... It's not based on our circumstances and not based on our situations. So as we unpack scripture this morning, we're going to see several principles relating directly to the attitude that we need to have in our hearts and how that attitude affects our spiritual stability, how that attitude affects our unity among believers as well. Number one this morning, if you have your outline, you can follow along. Our hearts must be oriented to the Lord. Our hearts must be oriented to the Lord. Look at verse 4. Paul writes this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And again, I say rejoice. What Paul had in mind here was a congregation where rejoicing was the norm. In fact, when we consider spiritual stability, when we consider unity, it's very difficult, if almost impossible, to have unity. It's impossible to have spiritual stability if there is no joy, if there is no rejoicing among the people of God. You show me a congregation that is spiritually stable. You show me a congregation that is unified in the Lord. And I'll show you a congregation where their hearts are rejoicing. 
Their hearts are full of joy. Their hearts are full of the things that Paul is writing to us about. Rejoice here. It means to be glad. It means to enjoy a state of gladness, happiness, or well-being. This is a present tense use of that word rejoice. It means to keep on rejoicing. Paul says, hey, believers in Philippi, keep on rejoicing. It's an ongoing thing. It's ongoing in nature. Paul talks about here. Hey, believers in Philippi, don't worry about your situation. Don't worry about your circumstances. Keep on rejoicing, even in the midst of those circumstances and situations. Notice what Paul does here. He repeats the word rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And if that's not enough, church, again, I want to tell you to rejoice. The ESV translation, the translation that I'm currently using, it seems to lack emphasis here. Other translations, they put a they put an exclamation point after that second rejoice. And I tend to consider that a better translation, a better way to to explain that, because Paul has intense feelings here. He has an intense joy. He has a high volume. I can imagine Paul sitting there chained to that Roman soldier with that chain between him and Paul. And he's just crying out, rejoice, church, rejoice. It's crazy, but that Roman soldier probably probably thought he was crazy. Probably thought he was crazy, but think about think about that witness from the Apostle Paul. He's showing emphasis here. Now we look at this and we understand there's there's a couple of contexts that we can consider here. The immediate context Paul might be referring to here is is the dispute that we talked about last week between these two prominent women in the church. That continues in verse four. I think that's the immediate context of the passage. Paul says, listen, ladies. Set aside this petty argument that you have and rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, set aside your circumstances. But there's an implied context here as well. Paul, uh, with Paul's current circumstances. Again, we see Paul, he's he's in Rome, he's 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 under house arrest. Paul was uncertain whether he would live. He was uncertain whether he would die. He was uncertain whether he would even be let loose and be freed from his imprisonment. And yet he finds the time to write and says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in your situation, rejoice in your circumstances. Notice also the Philippian believers, if you remember anything about the Philippian believers, they were a young, they were young in their faith. They were young believers They were beginning to face persecution. Listen, this was some severe persecution that they were beginning to face for their faith. They were beginning to be killed for their faith. Persecution that you and I may not ever face. But they were beginning to be killed. They were facing false teachers. And Paul was telling them, listen, set all that aside. Set all those situations aside. Set all those circumstances aside, church, and rejoice. Find joy in your circumstances. Be glad in your circumstances. Paul understood. He understood when there is inner joy, when we have inner rejoicing, Paul says there's unity. He says there's peace. There's harmony as a result. It's much harder. Would you agree? It's much harder to have a lack of unity. It's much harder to be bitter at one another. It's much harder to be fighting about petty issues. When we have joy, when we have rejoicing, when we have gladness, 
So where does this attitude come from? Well, Paul gives us that answer in that verse. He says it comes in the Lord. The Lord is our source. The Lord is the source of our joy. The Lord is the source of our rejoicing. It's found in God. It's found in being a child of God. Listen, if you are a child of God this morning, you can have joy. You can have rejoicing. And your circumstances of your situation and circumstances. Why? Because your situation and your circumstances doesn't dictate whether you are a child of God or not. You've already taken care of that by putting your faith in Christ. It doesn't dictate that. So Paul says it comes from the Lord. And if you pay close attention to Paul's words here, you notice, look in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1. What does Paul say? He says, stand firm thus in what? The Lord. In verse 2, he told, tells these ladies to agree in what? The Lord. Here in verse 4, he says to rejoice in what? The Lord. We'll get to verse 7, but I'll mention it right now. He says, your minds in Christ Jesus, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Lord. That's where the source of our joy and our rejoicing comes from. Paul gives no justification here. Listen, there is no justification. Paul doesn't say rejoice unless... Unless you're diagnosed with cancer, unless you lose your puppy, your puppy runs away, unless your family goes through a divorce. No, Paul doesn't say any of those things. His command was to rejoice in the Lord. We tend to make justifications for our lack of joy and our lack of joy and our lack of rejoicing. Most of the time, it's because of the situation and circumstances that you and I face. Maybe health changes. Maybe economic changes. Maybe family changes. Maybe relational changes. The reality is that our situation, church, and our circumstances do change. They do change. And sometimes they change on a daily basis. Sometimes they change within the hour. And those changes are not always for the better. They oftentimes get worse. But notice what Paul says here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. All day, every day, Paul says. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, in the good and in the bad. Now, I want to speak pastorally to each and every one of you here this morning and those of you on Facebook as well. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, listen, Pastor Michael, you have no idea. You have no idea what my circumstances are. You have no idea. What my situation is. You have no idea what my family's going through. You have no idea what I've faced in this pandemic. You have no idea the loneliness that I have faced. You have no idea that I've had barely been able to keep food on the table for my husband or my wife in the pandemic and all the things that are going wrong. You have no idea that my relationship with my husband or my wife is imploding. You have no idea that my job is in jeopardy. You have no idea that my faith, my health is falling apart. I want to tell you that this morning that I don't. I don't have any idea what you're going through. And I certainly don't want to make light of your situation and your circumstances this morning. 
They are difficult and they are a struggle. But I want to encourage you this morning, church. I want to encourage you as the Apostle Paul did to the Philippians. If you are a child of God, you are in the Lord. You are in the Lord. It is the Lord that gives you the strength to be joyful. It is the Lord that gives you the strength to rejoice. And your circumstances pale, pale in comparison to what you have in the Lord. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. I want you to rest in that. The Bible's full of these types of rejoicing. We see rejoicing over the lost sheep that was found. Rejoicing over Jesus' miracles. The hope of rewards from God that we as believers had. Paul even talks about rejoicing in our suffering. I read a story about a 92-year-old Christian lady who was legally blind. In spite of her limitations, she was always neatly dressed with her hair carefully brushed and her makeup tastefully applied. Each morning, she would meet a new day with eagerness. After her husband of 70 years died, it became necessary for her to go to a nursing home where she could uh, receive proper care. On the day of the move, a helpful neighbor drove, drove her there and guided her into the lobby. Her room wasn't ready, so they waited patiently in the lobby for several hours. When an attendant finally came to her, she smiled sweetly and maneuvered her walker to the elevator. The staff member described to her her room, including the new curtains that had been hung on the windows. I love it, she declared. But Miss Jones, you haven't seen your room yet, the attendant replied. That doesn't have anything to do with it, she said. Joy is something you choose. Whether I like my room or not doesn't depend on how it's arranged. It's how I arrange my heart. Habakkuk, writing just before the fall of Assyria and the rise of Babylon, wrote this. He says, though the fig tree not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, he says. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Joy and rejoicing, church, are that we are choice. We can make the choice whether we are joyous or are that we are not. Thus, joy and rejoicing must not be dictated by the sum of our situations and circumstances, regardless of how difficult they may be. But the reality is that our hearts are oriented in the Lord. That's where we have to find our joy and our rejoicing. It's in the Lord that we find our joy. So there's a direct correlation in the orientation of our hearts and the response that we give not only to God, but the response that we give to others as well. Number two, principle number two this morning is our hearts must be sensitive. We've got to be sensitive to how we treat others, how we treat others. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness, Paul says, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand as complex as our world is there is one thing i think we all can agree upon there is a blatant a blatant disregard for how others are treated you agree even from those of us who claim to be followers of jesus christ there's a blatant disregard of that A blatant disregard of the treatment of those who are made in the image of God. You don't need to look any further than our own families oftentimes to see this unfortunate truth play out. 
I cringe at the reality of how people treat others. I cringe at the reality of how I myself treat others. Those that bear the same image as I do, the image of God. And yet I treat them often as though they're inferior. I treat them often as though they're less than me. Let's consider the words of Paul this morning. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness there, the New American Standard uh, says a gentle spirit. The NIV says gentleness. It means equitable. It means to be fair. It means to be mild or gentle. The implication there is Paul's talking about selflessness and he's talking about a genuine respect of others. Paul's dealing with the dispute among the believers. It was probably a petty dispute. Remember, these ladies had a disagreement. We realize it was probably a petty disagreement. It was a selfish disagreement. It was a me-centered disagreement. And Paul says, listen, that's not reasonableness. That's not gentleness. That's not being gentle to others. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to not have the same, uh, same agree on everything. It's okay to, to disagree about the color of the carpet. It's okay to disagree about the color of the, the pews. It's okay to disagree about those things. But listen, we've got to come to an agreement, Paul says. But let your reasonableness, let your selflessness, let your genuine respect of others show. Paul says, listen, uh, that type of treatment of others is not a characteristic of the child of God. So what does this child of God look like? What is Paul talking about here? What does this reasonable look like? What is this gentle spirit? Well, I'll give you several things this morning. It means that we have a willingness to yield our personal rights. Ooh. There's a tendency that we want to force everyone into a certain mold. You need to be like this. You need to be like me. No, they don't. They are made in the image of God and God created them differently. And we need to respect that difference. Treat them with gentleness. Willing to give up our own personal rights. We need to be willing to show consideration to others. We need to give others the benefit of the doubt. Willingness to consider all the facts of the case. To hear both sides before we jump to a conclusion. Before we choose sides. We need to hear both sides. The willingness to surrender our own way. It's not about us. First and foremost, it's about the Lord. It's not about us. I had a friend one time that worked alongside of me at the fire department. And this was years ago. This is when I first hired on. And, and he was, he and his wife were getting ready to have a child. And one of the statements that he was made, he would make is this not going to change my life any. Not going to change my life any. He don't make that statement any longer. It's been years, but, but that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the attitude Paul's talking about is reasonableness. A willingness to be flexible. If a husband and wife are not flexible in a marriage, there is no marriage. One of the things that I, one of the, the illustrations there I like to use is a mission trip. When you go on a mission trip, if you've ever been on a mission trip, got to be. One of the key things you have to understand is you need to be flexible. Got to be flexible can't be rigid willingness to defer what does that mean it means to put off our wants and maybe even our needs for what the sake of others the sake of others the willingness to give grace to others 
Why? Because we've been given that grace. Willingness to not be too sensitive or not be too touchy. A willingness to not wear our feelings on our shoulders or to take things the wrong way. And I understand oftentimes there are misunderstandings. There are situations. Listen, I think one of the things that that text messaging has created and emails has created and all these Facebook, uh, Instagram posts and all these other things is all the misunderstandings that come about from those tweets and those posts and all these other things. We've got to understand that we need to not be too sensitive and not too touchy. We need to not wear our feelings on our shoulders because not everybody is out to get us. Not everybody is out to make us feel bad and all those other things. So what do all these characteristics have in common? Well, they have this in common. They're found in the character of Jesus. And know who who, who is inside the believer? Jesus. They're found in that. So if that character is found in Christ and Christ is found in us, then guess what else is in us? Joy, rejoicing, the whole character of Christ, all the characteristics of Christ. They are all found in Jesus and they're all found in us as well. Paul says they should be visible. They should be a visible sign. They should be a manifestation of the life of the one, the child of God. The people should see that. Others should see that. This is contrary to the world, church. This is contrary to the world. The world says it's all about me. But we as Christians should say, no, it's all about you, whoever you are. Paul reminds us of the important truth here as well. He says, the Lord is at hand. There's a couple of things we need to consider here. One is that Jesus is coming back. The return of Christ is imminent, I believe, and Christ is coming back. But there's something else we need to understand. That not only is Christ coming back, but we need to understand there's a time and a space thing here. The time is that Jesus will come back at a certain time, but there's also a space thing. And what I mean by that is we have Christ living within us. So we, the Lord is near. The Lord is as near as he can be because he's in our heart. He's in our souls. He's in our mind. He's in our inner being. So we have Christ at hand. He is at hand. And I can tell you this once again, that one day there are actions and we will be judged for our words and our deeds. You can rest assured of that, church. So he's not only near in time, but he's also near in space. The Lord occupies our church, so it should be Natural that you and I are joyful. It should be natural that we rejoice. The story is told of a company that had decided to open their stores on Sunday. Because they were located in an area with many churches, the corporation received scores of condemning letters from angry Christians. Some even said they, listen, this is what Christians were saying. Some even said that they were glad there was an eternal hell for those who made this decision. Christians and non-Christian employees were offended, I can imagine, and embarrassed. A lack of gentleness had harmed Christ's cause. These are Christians that are making this statement. Paul reminded, uh, wrote to Titus, he reminded, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, he says, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect 
courtesy toward all people. Those are words from Paul to Titus. The golden rule still applies. You know what the golden rule is? We should treat others the way we want to be treated. Listen, that's regardless of how they treat us. To do that, we must see them as one made in the image of God and understand that they are made in the image of God and that we have an obligation as a child of God to treat them as Jesus Christ would treat them. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, there are rare Christians whose very presence incites others to be better Christians. He says, I want to be that rare Christian. Is that you this morning? Do you want to be that rare Christian this morning? Do I want to be that rare Christian this morning that makes others better Christians? Rare Christians don't fill their hearts with things that are unhealthy. That leads us to our third principle this morning. Our hearts must be free of unhealthy habits. Our hearts must be free of unhealthy habits. Look at verse number 6. Paul writes this. He says, do not be anxious about anything. The command that Paul gives here is clear. Christians are not to be anxious. We're not to worry about anything. Anxiety and worry are physically and spiritually deadly. Anxiety there or worry, it means to be troubled with one's harassing cares. Harassing cares. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in in America, affecting some 40 million adults age 18 and older each year. That is 18.1% of the population. People with anxiety disorders are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor. They are six times more likely to be hospitalized with psychiatric disorders. Symptoms include restlessness, irritability, difficulty concentrating, uh, chronic fatigue, cancers, worry, but they basically worry themselves to death. Anxiety is a form of fear. We worry about things that will never happen. Listen, I want to be transparent with you here. This is one of my biggest sins. This is one of the biggest things that I deal with in my life is anxiety and worry. I struggle daily with this. I worry about what might happen, whether it be good or bad. I worry about my health. I I worry about it. In in, in fact, that the very thing that negatively, as I worry about this, I don't realize, hey man, as you worry, it's affecting your health in a negative way. Anxiety is a lack of trust. Anxiety creates uncertainty. It all boils down to this. Anxiety is sin. Anxiety is sin. And the Philippians, they were, they were anxious. We know this. They were anxious about what they were facing. They were anxious about persecution. They were anxious anxious about your current situations. Their current situations. People were leaving the fold. False teachers were, were everywhere. Persecution was rampant. They were being physically persecuted. But Paul reminds them. He says, no, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, he says. Anything. Anything means anything. Why? 
How does that work, Pastor? How do you do that? How does that work? Well, Paul says, listen, understand that the sparrows, think about the sparrows. What did Jesus say about the sparrows? They didn't go out and they didn't, they didn't bring in and all those other things. Why? Because he cared for them. The lilies of the field, he dressed them as well. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 23. Listen, you know this passage. You probably can quote it by heart, but I want to read it this morning. Psalm 23. A lovely psalm. And listen, if you have the King James Version, it's even more lovely as you read it through the King James Version. David writes this. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. What does he say? I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There it is. There is a reality. There is a shadow of death. And we're going to walk through that shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are good words, church. Those are good words. Paul gives us the prescription here. He says, I'll tell you how we do this. I'll tell you how we avoid anxiety and how we avoid worry. First of all, he says, listen, let's pray. But in everything, he says, by prayer, prayer there, it simply means talking to God. This is a worshipful attitude. This is general in nature. Prayer is general in nature. It's defined this way by the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia as this. He says, Christian prayer in its full New Testament meaning is prayer addressed to God as Father In the name of Christ as mediator and through the enabling grace of the indwelling spirit. Listen, when we pray, we don't have room to worry. We don't have room to be anxious. Because everything we're doing is giving God glory and praising him for it. The second thing we do, the second prescription Paul would write. He says, through supplication, through prayer and supplication. What does that mean? It means it's a request. It's a petition. This is more specific in nature. We pray for our needs. You remember David. David prayed for mercy in Psalm 41. He prayed for deliverance. In Psalm 6, he prayed for leading in Psalm 5. He prayed for salvation from persecution in Psalm 7. Just a few of the specific prayers that David prayed. The supplications that he lifted up to God. Paul You remember Paul, Paul prayed uh, for the thorn to be removed. Specific. Matthew 6, 11. What does Jesus say? The model prayer, he says, give us our what? Daily bread. We pray for what we need daily. We supplicate. Those are supplications. Those needs that we need to be met. Supplication is asking God for what we need with the understanding of this. That not my will, but what? Yours. Not only that, but we do that in Thanksgiving. The other part of that prescription is for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving shapes our prayers with gratitude. Paul reminded them, he said, to be thankful to God. Thank God for the opportunity. Listen, we need to thank God for the opportunity to even be able to come before Him. I mean, He gives us the opportunity, His children, His creation... 
his sinful creatures to come before him, a holy God, a perfect God. So we need to first and foremost thank him for that. The opportunity to ask God for our needs, the opportunity to ask God for our wants. Oh, such a glorious and thankful thing. We need to thank God for his answered prayers. How many of us write down prayers and when they're answered, we go back and put answered by those prayers. And then we thank God for them. We shout out to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Past and present and future. But he goes on to give one final thing there. He says, our requests. He says, let your requests be made known to God. Requests there, it's a desire. It's a specific, a very specific concern. This should be great comfort for us as children of God to know that God has it. We can put it in His hands. He's got this. Just give it to me, He says. Just let me have it and I'll take care of it. We can rest in that so we don't need to worry about it. Jesus, He speaks about worry in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember this? Therefore, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Fret and worry, church, indicates, first and foremost, a lack of trust in Almighty God. I don't trust you, Lord, so I'm going to worry about it. In his wisdom, his sovereignty, and his providence. I heard a story one time of a man who came home. Every day he would come home. There was a tree out front. And he would come home and he would hang his worries up on that tree. Every day he would come home and he's hanging his worries on that tree. He'd go in and he'd spend the night. He'd take care of his family and do all those other things. He'd come back out. He got ready for work. He'd get up. He'd come back out. And you know what he'd do? He picked those worries back up and put them right on himself and go on to work. It's not the idea, church. The idea is to turn them over to God and leave them there. Leave them on that tree. Let God take care of it. We avoid the lures of anxiety and worry when we take delight and meditate on the Lord. When we seek the Lord through prayer, this is the avenue where we place all of our needs, all of our needs in the hands of God. Why? Because He cares. He cares. We are to worry about nothing but pray about everything. So these first three principles, when we take these first three principles together, it leads us to our final fourth, our fourth and final principle. Number four is this. Our hearts will be full of peace. Our hearts will be full of peace. Look with me at verse seven, that final verse in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, peace there, it means harmony. It means a a perfect peace in the midst of trouble. It means in the midst of our situations, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our temptations and all the things that you and I face on a daily basis. It means a perfect peace in the midst of that trouble. It is a peace that can only be found in harmony with God. The peace begins with our relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, you cannot have this perfect peace. You do not have access to this perfect peace. It only comes through a relationship with Christ. That's where it begins. 
no ordinary peace, Paul says. It's not a peace that you and I can conjure up on our own. It's a peace that accompanies both uh, between a reconciled God and a relationship with that individual. We are reconciled through Christ. Our lives have been reconciled when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Once we do that and once that happens, we receive this peace. Notice what Paul says about this peace. Look at, the, look at what he says about it. It's, he says, which surpasses all understanding. This peace surpasses all understanding, Paul says. Surpasses there means to be above. It means to exceed. It means to rise above. To rise above what, Pastor? To rise above our finite understanding. This peace that can only come from God, it, it transcends our understanding. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many degrees that you have. I don't care how much knowledge you have, even in biblical things. The peace of God surpasses our understanding. It surpasses our knowledge. You say to me this morning, I don't understand. And I say to you, exactly. Exactly. I'm reminded of what the writer of Proverbs said. That, uh, Solomon says, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Isaiah wrote this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. It's Isaiah 55, 8. But not only does it surpass all understanding, Paul goes on and he says, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace, this peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that we get from being reconciled to God through faith in Christ, it guards our hearts. It guards there. It's a military term. Speaking about mounted guard, and this may be referring to Paul's own imprisonment here. He may be referring to being chained to that Roman guard, but it also may be referring to the status of Philippi as a Roman colony with a military garrison guarding the area. Regardless of what it refers to here, regardless of Paul's context, Paul makes clear that it is not the soldier that guards the hearts and minds of the believer. It is the peace that comes from the Prince of Peace. God Himself, He guards our hearts and minds. He guards the hearts and minds of the believers. Hearts and minds there. He's not, Paul's not using this as a, as a separate, separate terms here, different things. But what Paul is talking about, he's saying, listen, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God will guard everything about you. It'll guard the whole inner person. Everything about it, our, our, our hearts and our minds, it's the seat of our thoughts, it's the seat of our emotions, our passions, our desires, our appetites, our, our appetites, our purpose, our affections and our endeavors. It's everything about us. And this peace that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts and guards our minds. And Paul makes clear that the entirety of man is kept secure by the peace of Almighty God. What does that mean? That means that when we have these attitudes, when we have these thoughts, the peace of God that surpasses those understandings is guarding our thoughts, is guarding our hearts, is guarding our minds, is guarding our attitudes. Fort Knox, as you, you know, many of you know, and some of you may not, but I'm from Kentucky. Dana and I were from Kentucky. In Fort Knox, Kentucky, it's ranked as the most secure place in the world. 
It's one of America's monetary assets. Fort Knox is renowned for being one of the most secure places on earth. It is said that around 5,000 tons of gold are housed there. That's almost 2% of all gold on earth. To ensure it completely safe, there is a bank vault hidden deep within a basement of the depository that has a 250-ton door at its entrance. That's pretty secure. If that wasn't enough, the entire location is surrounded by a military camp to ward off any intruders. I'll tell you this this morning, church. Even the security of Fort Knox pales, pales in the, in the comparison to the security of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself. And I'll tell you this again. That peace lives within the child of God. Lives within the child of God. Jesus himself speaks about this peace that surpasses all understanding. He says this in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Neither let them be afraid. We can only hope to find in this world a peace that is temporary in nature. That's our only hope. This peace is fleeting at best. This peace, uh, peace is non-existent at worst. The peace that God gives, it's beyond our finite understanding. It transcends our finite understanding. And this peace can only be found, listen, it can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it is found the one who guards our hearts and the one who guards our minds with this peace, Jesus himself. So I wonder this morning, how many of us have ever stopped? How many of us have ever stopped to consider the condition of our hearts? Are our hearts full of joy and rejoicing or are our hearts full of anxiety and worry? If we have hearts full of anxiety and worry, we have hearts that are, that are full of bitterness. We have hearts that are full of unforgiveness and strife. If we are that way, then we're more than likely have lives that are dominated by our situations. Lives that are dominated by our circumstances. Circumstances and situations, they are the switches that turn our joy on and off. On the other hand, this morning, if your heart is full of joy, if your heart is full of rejoicing, then Paul says, listen, the Prince of God fills our lives. We should have unity. We have harmony. We have gentleness that dominate our lives. And as children of God, that is what we are commanded to do. We don't have a choice. You can't claim to be a child of God and be bitter at your neighbors and friends. We can't claim to be a child of God and and live lives that are full of anxiety and lives that are full of worry. The two are not compatible. Listen, I'm preaching to myself this morning too, church. This was a difficult message for me to prepare. And that, of course, it begins with a personal relationship with the Lord. I have a personal relationship with the Lord, so I have no right to live in worry. I have no right to live in anxiety. Then and only then do we have the opportunity to be filled with a peace that surpasses all understanding. If you're here this morning, if you're here on Facebook and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, let me invite you to Jesus this morning. Let me invite you to the Prince of Peace. Listen, the baptismal waters, are they're still warm. 
They're still warm. I don't know, but I don't think the church would mind to have that thing full some more today. They're still warm. If you already have that relationship with Christ, let me encourage you this morning. There is no justification for us living a life apart from the Prince of Peace, apart from the peace that God provides. There's no justification for the way we treat others other than the way Christ would treat others. So this morning, let me end this way. What is the attitude of our hearts this morning? Let's pray. Thanks again for listening today. We hope the word preached today would be used by God mightily as you go about your week. Again, if you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. Have a blessed day and may God grant you grace this week to grow more into the likeness of Jesus.